Okay, I am joined by Keith Elliott Greenberg, author of Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Revolution. Keith, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, David. Uh, we had a group chat uh, on the Fight Game podcast about three weeks ago, and uh, there's a lot of questions I wanted to uh, get to and ask you about. Um, one of the questions I asked you at the time was, do you think the revolution that you write about in the book would have happened if... WCW and ECW hadn't gone out of business in 2001. Of course, one of the companies that sort of came to the fore after that was Ring of Honor. Um, and uh, Ring of Honor was going really well. Then, unfortunately, the Rob Feinstein scandal happened. And it was really sort of the CM Punk Samoa Joe feud that kind of put that company back on the map, wasn't it? So, how yeah, yeah, yes. How important do you think those two guys were to Ring of Honor? Oh, they, they were critical, and Carrie Silkin, who I interview in the book and has and, and have spoken to quite a bit after the book was published, acknowledges that. Um, he says that the company, um, he was fighting off uh, all these negative charges, some of them directed at him personally by people who had never met him or didn't know anything about him. And as he puts it in then, CM Punk and Samoa Joe happened. And that changed everything. Why was it, do you think, that Samoa Joe didn't make the jump to WWE? Obviously, Punk got the OVW developmental deal. Was it just that TNA beat them to the punch, or was there no interest? You Perhaps. Think, I mean, and he was, you know, you look at the people who passed through TNA, you know, and you see AJ Styles, and you see Samoa Joe. I mean, they had some, some great talent. Yeah, Bobby Roode. Bobby Roode, and at that, at that stage... They were aggressively courting that talent. And these guys were, and you know, who knows? I don't know what was going on behind the scenes at WWE. But maybe at that stage, they were not as plugged into the indies as they are now. Now, of course, at NXT, they're very much plugged into the indies. But maybe their intelligence didn't extend that far. And a guy like Samoa Joe, maybe he was considered an indie guy. This is before YouTube, and no one had ever gotten the opportunity to actually see how compelling his matches were. Um, either way, um, you know, he's had some great matches in WWE before he got injured. Yeah, he's doing a great job now on, on commentary, isn't he? Uh... Yeah, I, in, incredible. It, it reminds me a bit of Taz. Yes. How he yeah. shows this other dimension to himself as a human being. And, you know, I'm wondering if CM Punk... No, I'm sorry. I'm wondering if Samoa Joe even realized how good he was on the microphone. I mean, he was always good at cutting a promo. But, um, you know, what a great commentator he is. And how you really believe... You know, this is a person speaking from experience and how he makes you believe in the plot lines, even if you might roll your eyes at some of those <laughs> plot lines. Absolutely. He made you believe in the eye for an eye match, which is difficult to do, given the yeah, concept. I mean, that, that match in particular, you know, I, I didn't even know why that, you know, just the stipulation was bizarre. <laughs> now, it's not the first eye for an eye match, but there was the implication one of you is going to lose an eye. Now we knew it was WWE, and they're, they've been doing cinematic matches, so we knew no one was literally going to lose an eye, uh, which is interesting because back in the day, um, wrestlers who were trained to be hookers or shooters, 
they were trained to go after somebody's eye if they were in danger. But that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> and how much do you think Combat Zone really missed, really blew it with that show they put on? I think it was, was it two and a half thousand people and it didn't finish like two o'clock in the morning. There was lots of issues and they tried to run the building again and it was like 500 people came the second time around. Well, you know, it, 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 I, I mean, I, I can't speak for them. Um, yeah, they, who knows why? I mean, Ring of Honor, when I remember WrestleMania 34, Ring of Honor ran the same night as NXT. And I was with a group of friends, among them Kenny McIntosh from Inside the Ropes. And we were at NXT, but we had a, a, we were all like crashing. We were in like two suites that were connected to each other. I'd say there were close to a dozen of us. And uh, we were all exchanging texts back and forth, and we had a bunch of buddies at the Ring of Honor show. And initially, we were getting messages like, oh my God, it's going on forever. You know, if there's still three matches to the main event. And at that point, Ring of Honor had Cody and the Bucks. And, uh, you know, no, nobody, nobody said we're boycotting Ring of Honor after this. Um, I can only know from the people I spoke to when I was working on the book that there were some questions about CZW's management style. I had heard and I wrote about this in the book that some of the guys were told make a choice. You're either going to work with us or you're not going to work with any other, you know, local promotions. So there may have been other factors that contributed to that. Also, I would think that when you're a small operation and you stage a show and people are unhappy in the immediate aftermath, you know, there's only a handful of people surrounding you and maybe there aren't enough people to bolster you and to say, hey, we'll do better next time. So, you know, it could be any number of things. And you know, I've quite a lot of topics here. There's, I'm, there's no sort of rhyme or reason. To, it's, it, I'm just sort of jumping across the board here. But sure. um, I wanted to ask you about... I actually wanted to check something that you, that you said in the book. Um, Fight TV, was it 125 different companies? Um, um, was that the right figure? Because that sounded like a lot of... Yeah, but realize they deal with other combat sports as well. Right, so that's not that's not just wrestling. That's no, those that's are boxing not and sports. yeah. They're dealing with MMA and they're dealing with boxing. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to chat that. You know, that, that... And I don't have I don't have my notes in fr- I don't have my notes in front of me, but I have been on Fight TV promoting the book, and I've also spoken with their COO Mike Weber. And I think that Mike Weber would have told me, um, hey, you know what, uh, thanks for inflating, you know, the company. No, I was, I was sure the number was correct. I was just I was just checking that I didn't mishear it because yeah. I listened to it on the, the audio book. Um, yeah. And was Mike Quackenbush the person you were most surprised to get to interview for the book, would you say? I was pretty surprised because Quackenbush... You know, I was trying to get to him through a guy who's um, was a trainee down in South Jersey in Philadelphia. And he said, you know, you may not get Quackenbush, but, you know, you, you may get people who've worked with him. You know, sometimes he remains elusive. He keeps his storylines a little hidden. And eventually he's like, I'm so sorry it, it, it took me so long to get back to you. 
but please come down. We're doing training this week. And, uh, you know, he gave me a lot of a lot of time. And whatever happened to Gary Yap, do we know? <laughs> um, well, I was told that someone in the uh, Southern California wrestling scene told me that they still speak with him. Um, because he was a decent human being, so even though he may not, according to what people tell me, even though he may not have been um, a very organized wrestling promoter and he overpaid people, they don't resent him for overpaying. Um, and he got himself in some debt and wasn't able to keep his organization going. But from what I understand, you know, he has no problem showing his face anywhere because the, pe the wrestlers who worked for him like him. And Robbie Brookside, being a, being a Brit, I wanted to ask you about Robbie Brookside because he's a guy that a lot of guys like Jericho will mention, but he never really had a sort of platform in America, did he? To, to, no, he why do you think he never, why do you think never happened? Uh, you know, and maybe, maybe it's, you know, him being a few years too old, maybe him, Robbie Brookside, been born, you know, seven or eight years later, he would have gotten that platform. But I can remember when I wrote for the WWF's magazines, or I think at that point it was WWE, uh, covering a series of shows in the UK and being in Manchester and walking into the dressing room and seeing him there. And I think, I don't know if he was working a dark match there or he was just there visiting friends. But I remember being very excited to see him in the flesh and him having time on his hands because he was more than happy to just hang out and answer all my uh, questions about his wrestling career. And another thing that really caught my ear when I was listening to the audiobook was the story about Randy Savage and Bill Dundee. I wonder, if, what was the craziest version of that story that you'd ever heard? Well, I had heard that Randy Savage pistol whipped him. Um, and again, I'm, you know, it, it's very folkloric because I asked Randy Savage and he wouldn't answer the question. <laughs> he, he just said that... Sorry, he just said that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of versions of that story, and then he didn't yeah, elaborate any further. Yeah, there's a lot of versions yeah. of that story. Now, Randy Savage would tend to do that. Randy Savage was a tough guy, and he didn't like to boast about it, probably because he knew how tough he was. So sometimes, you know, people would be telling fighting stories, and he'd go, well, I wouldn't know about that because I'm not a tough guy, and everybody would chuckle. But he never boasted about it, and then I kicked his ass. That wasn't his style. Yeah, because there was a famous one with him. Was it one of the Road Warriors? If I think it was, was it Animal or Hawk? Yes, it was. I, Road, I believe it was Road Warrior uh, Hawk. I think their girl, their their women folk got into it, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and then then they got into it, and you know that was uh, when he was in WCW, and from what I understand, that was not a very happy period in his life and it was an ugly incident all the way around and one note i made when i was uh listening to the book was i, I really feel bad for for jack rougeau because obviously he wanted so badly for his kids to sort of follow in his footsteps and it never really happened so i just kind of yeah, thought, he had three kids including one very impressive looking kid but all the kids were trained and you know, they had the, the pedigree. But, you know, I remember when I wrote a book with superstar Billy Graham, 
Um, meeting his wife, him and his wife one day for lunch. I think it was after the book was published. And his wife was the daughter of two wrestlers as well. And uh, one of her nieces, I believe, stopped by. And we were telling wrestling stories. And the niece, even though she came from that background, not only did she not have interest in it, she didn't have familiarity with it. So, you know, if it's not in the blood, like if your father was an accountant and that wasn't your calling, you may not want to be an accountant or hang out with a bunch of accountants. <laughs> or what would you call them in, um, what, in in the UK? Would you say an accountant? Oh, yeah, you could say accountant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or solicitor would be another word. Solicitor, right, yeah. Um, the term indie, obviously you say in the book you don't quite know when outlaw became indie because it used to be called was it used to be called outlaw wrestling it was called outlaw i mean i know when i started writing for ww the wwf around 1985 i can remember still using the term outlaw and um and then you know then it would indie was being used at the same time it was interchangeable for a while i'd say once herb abrams came around it was called indie, and even though he was an outlaw in every sense of the word. And a quote from the book, I, I, I can't remember who this was attributed to, but it was 15 minutes in the ring with Teddy Hart is the equivalent to a seminar at Oxford. I think, so, I, I, think I wrote that. Oh, was that yours? Um, but, yeah. but, but that was based on, you know, people who had worked with Teddy Hart. Now, again, they said he didn't love to sell that much, uh, and he, he hated to lose. But when he wanted to give you a good match, you got a great match, and you got all his knowledge. And, um, you know, that that's even been said to me by people who I've heard um, say negative things about him personally. But, I mean, Teddy Hart was, you know, a, a phenomenal performer. Obviously, it's got it in his genes, but I... I wondered, you know, if you had to say which of the Hart family was the best worker that you've ever seen. I mean, how can you say? A lot of people would, would argue Owen. Yeah. But, um, you yeah, know, it, Owen, yeah. Sorry, Owen was more of a, a complete performer. Bret Hart was a great technical wrestler, but Owen obviously had the high-flying aspect as well, didn't he? So it's a difficult yes, one. I mean, you know, they, they both wrestled in many of the same places. I can remember Owen Hart telling me about wrestling in um, Germany and um, they would wrestle in a tent, in a carnival tent, for two weeks straight. Um, you know, they would just put on a show every night and you were working with performers from all over Europe and um, he said he learned so much doing that. But, you know, Brett went through a lot of the same things. Stu uh, had international relationships and those guys were trained by wrestlers from Japan as well as wrestlers from Mexico so they were both very complete performers but I remember when Owen was a youngster just hearing from people and maybe even Brett that he may have been the, one of the most talented ones in the family now some people might argue that Teddy Hart was the most talented Hart mm. and you know I still feel we've yet to see Davy Boy Smith Jr. peak. So, you know, we may be having a very different conversation two or three years from now. Absolutely. Um, and one thing, uh, not to do with the book, but 
on the group chat you mentioned Paul Bearer and there's just been a great documentary done on the I network watched it this afternoon. yeah and I just because I, I got to know Percy not well but I got to correspond with Percy a little bit and so did I. Yeah. he was just one of the real great guys I just wonder if you had any yeah. stories about Percy and if you could tell us about, about no him. just you know I, I felt the documentary captured him he adored his wife and I can remember him writing me messages on, um, I think it was on Facebook, or it could have been AOL chat at the time, just about how concerned he was about her when, when she had breast cancer, mm. and how emotional he was about it, and how scared he was about losing her. And then, um, you know, there was a period where he wasn't involved in the business, and I think he was a bit hurt that some people weren't checking in with him as often as he wanted them to. And I guess he considered these people his family on the road, and he thought, you know, if your wife is dying, your family checks in on you. But Bret Hart once told me something. He said, you know, um, you are a family, but everyone still has their own lives. Mm -hmm. And if your friends are on the road, it doesn't mean they don't love you as a friend anymore. But they're, you know, just breaking their, their, their backs in the ring and hustling to get to the gym and get to the next town and then having to fly home and dealing with, with whatever family turmoil they have. And it's not necessarily um, a betrayal of you or an indicator that your friendship isn't strong. It's just life gets in the way. And just lastly, because obviously I don't want to keep you too long, but just in, in closing um, you mentioned uh, Terry Funk uh, is it fair to say Terry Funk's probably your favourite performer of all time? I, I would say he would be just because you look at Terry Funk and the longevity of his career and the various roles he's played um, you know I've said this before from being a clean cut young technical baby face to being a crazy old man, to being Chainsaw Charlie. And, um, you know, representing a technical style, being able to translate his style to the Japanese style, being a favorite in Japan. And um, then, you know, being crazy, middle-aged, dangerous Terry Funk, and then hardcore ECW Terry Funk, and being a great promo throughout. I mean, having, you know... Uh, an empty arena match with Jerry Lawler that, I forget, it was something like 45 falls. I don't remember yeah. the exact amount. But that being compelling, watching video of an empty arena match back in those days. You know, I guess, I, don't, I can't think of anybody who over such a lengthy time has done as much at such a high level. Because one of his most iconic matches was the I Quit match with Ric Flair. And I just That's my favorite one. I and the... and I, I tell myself that and then remind myself, but I didn't grow up in Amarillo. Had I done so, or even had I grown up in Florida when he was the NWA champ, that might be, the, the I Quit match might be number three or four on my list because I didn't get to see a lot of those matches in person. And of course, there wasn't YouTube back then. So the last thing I wanted to say in reference to the I Quit match, did you see the match between Eddie Kingston and John Moxley from the pay-per-view at the weekend? Of course I did, yes. Uh, yes. I just wonder what you thought, because a lot of people said they missed the microphone element of it. Well, I will say this. When the match ended, 
I thought, did Kingston not quit? Because it looked like Bryce Remsburg, who it's been established is a friend of Eddie Kingston from way back, was very emotional when he was signaling for the bell. And I thought, are they going to say that Kingston never quit? That Moxley's beaten him twice and he's never quit? Is this going to continue? So that was one thing I missed. I, I found myself asking, yeah. did he really quit? Because, I mean, the microphone can break up the match a little bit. And because the worst case scenario was the, the Bret Hart, Bob Backlund match where Roddy Piper <laughs> was constantly asking, you know, do you quit? That's the worst. Right. But I do think that you do need a microphone to, so you can hear it. Yeah, and to be honest, I thought the Roman Reigns-Jey Uso match, the way the mic was... Oh, I love that match, yeah. It was, yeah, it was a beautiful, emotional match. And the way the, the ring was mic'd up, you heard the referee ask every time. Great, Keith. Thank you very much. I would love to shoot the breeze of you again whenever you whenever me, you're me, free. Me too. I'd love to talk to you again, and hopefully, when once this pandemic ends, we can speak in person. I would love to. Thank you very much, Keith. Thank you, David. Great talking thank, to you. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye.